You're listening to the Overfunctioning Leadership Podcast, learning leadership concepts through life experience. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to another podcast sponsored by Overfunctioning Leadership. I'm Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. And today we're going to be talking about the myth of competence. And so, actually, John's going to lead us down a little journey um, with this discussion. But before we get there, we need to recap our last podcast. Um, and that was Leading Without Being in Charge. And actually, it was a guest we had in, Jared Williams, who is an associate pastor at Redemption Chapel in Stowe, Ohio. And what, what did we talk about, John? Well, Jared uh, talked uh, about what it's like to be in a position of, of an associate pastor or a situation where the person's not the lead person in charge. And we spoke about um, thinking about staying in your lane and focusing on what you're responsible for. Trying to stay away from, I think he used the phrase from Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, about the sphere of control and, and trying to stay away from the control piece, but focusing on your own functioning and uh, being responsible with that. And most importantly, we measured everything in Grebes. We did measure <laughs> units of Grebes. That's ang- that's, uh, for those listeners who are not familiar um, it's hard to find this on the on the World Wide Web, but if you use Alta Vista as your search engine, you might be able to do mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. But Grebes is actually a measurement, a unit of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, uh, so, anyways, go ahead and give that a listen. Uh, just we're really glad that we could have Jared on. It was it was fun to have him on. So, um, this is episode thirty two. So, John, this is whose? Well, I've been watching a lot, a little bit of uh, Hard Knocks with Cleveland Browns and oh. Thirty Two Jim Brown. Oh yes, well of course. I mean the, in a lot of people's opinion, probably the best uh, football player that ever lived. Perhaps. Uh-huh. So, um, and if I remember his running style, he would actually be approved for uh, the concussion stuff because I every time I've seen him ever run in any highlight ever, he was just running like upright and people were just bouncing off of him. Yes. <laughs> So, okay. He, he, he could have run without a helmet. I mean, seriously, like people would just, you know, he didn't put his head down anyways. This is not a sports podcast. And I know Zach would love it to be a sports podcast. I would love to talk about them hoops. <laughs> Speaking of Zach, I believe you are bringing the fable tonight. So we're going to go ahead and uh, toss yeah. in another tiny umbrella into our drinks. Fable time. So, uh, you know, speaking of umbrellas, you know, my family kicked it uh, a couple weeks ago where we headed out to Seattle for our fam vacation. And, you know, it's a good old time. So we headed out to uh, Seattle. And when we were there, um, things just didn't always go as we planned. Uh, And that led to a lot of subtle um, anxiety with my mother because she was the one who had particularly planned that. And... Whether she was the source or responding to the anxiety, you know, things just weren't going as planned, but she had been the primary planner. And that mixed with the change in our family system in that uh, Logan this past summer was the first summer he had been on an internship, Logan, my other younger brother, mm-hmm. and um, he's going back to school. And so he's basically, you know, done. He's moving out of the family to some degree. And there's some level of change in that. My mom's mom and dad are becoming more and more of empty nesters. And uh, from what I understand and, you know, all my 
parent groups that I'm not a part of. You know, they talk about how that's a very difficult time in a parent's life. Uh, right? Right, John? My wife and I cheer pretty frequently about the empty nest. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, children. <laughs> and so she had this expectation of, well, I'll get to that in a second. So there's just a lot of anxiety built up because things aren't going perfectly and they don't always and we're in a new place. And so what ends up happening is uh, it's this third or fourth day and things have just gone like, okay, not great, not bad. Everything that's good seems to be punctuated with something that just like throws us for a loop. And so... Um, me being just the super differentiated and humble person that I am. Um, it's just, uh, my sister had actually said something in the elevator that, uh, she had mentioned that my mom was probably thinking that this vacation wasn't going well because she had been the one to plan it and it wasn't going perfectly. And that made me think about, you know, the subtle anxiety in the system. And so we're about to sit down before a movie and I just say, hey, guys, like before we continue, like let's actually say what we've been feeling and how we think this trip has been going. And so we just sort of laid it out there and everyone's like, yeah, we're having a good time. Like it hasn't been perfect. We don't expect it to be perfect, but we're having fun and we're enjoying being here and together. And that's why we're here. And my mom was like, yeah, like things haven't been going perfect. And, you know, I'm just afraid, you know, that fear that if if this doesn't go well, you guys aren't going to want to come on a family vacation in the future. And so um, I just want this to go really well. There's like a lot of pressure. And so just talking about that, you could feel how the next day things were just a lot more lighthearted, a lot more carefree, a lot more playful because everyone had sort of set what they were feeling, what they were experiencing on the table. And we reevaluated our expectations. We reset um, why we were there. You know, we're just reminded each other we're there to share in each other's company. And that just really helped the whole rest of the vacation go smoothly. Yeah. So I wanted, I wanted Zach to share that because that's, I would say atypical to a lot of families. And so that was really cool when you shared that with me today. And thank you for sharing with other other people. But it, there is something to be said of that this is something that you can do and it works. I mean, the stuff that we're talking about, you put right into play um, to be able to just share that way. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, I, and this is the first I've heard that story. So I'm really interested in just asking a couple questions. So, Zach, when you brought up that question of sharing what we're feeling, was there a bit of nervousness on your part that, you know, maybe you shouldn't say this or you weren't quite sure what was going to happen? I'm just curious as you thought through that. Um, no, uh, I would say in my family, I'm more of an underfunctioner than an overfunctioner. Um, so in that capacity, I wasn't really worried about how people was going to respond. It was more of a stepping outside of the easy role of not saying anything and just letting things happen. So would you say then that your, your prior way of functioning would be that you would be less likely to, in your, in your role, that role that you've had for, for a while in your family, that, that you were stepping out of that role by asking that question? Yeah, I I definitely uh, it's not something that my family's not seen before, but it's definitely not what people expected to happen. Well, that's really interesting. You know, we, we talk about the idea of doing something different in a system and you know, so Zach 
taking something that was that people were thinking and feeling and and had different thoughts about it but everyone was thinking something and making that go from chronic to acute and then bringing the the secrets out into the open to be discussed and it allowed the system to just become a little bit calmer and then the next day the family could see what was happening whatever took place in a different lens through a different lens through a more nuanced uh, more carefree lens than one that was so serious so serious one of the hallmarks of an anxious system is seriousness and so he was able to help his family get to a higher functioning plane of playfulness and fun through an observation a question and then a family discussion which is really interesting and i do want to say that um, we talk a lot about internal reflection and just um, introspection, know what your emotional responses are. And I, I try to deal with as little chronic anxiety as I can at any given point in time. I always joke with people that I just have such a low threshold for anxiety that any level of it just tears me apart. Um, and so I... I'm used to, as, as we most, I think most of us are, I'm used to bearing with some level of chronic anxiety with my family because, you know, that's the place where it often starts and boils over and all that. But um, having felt that anxiety and not responded, the thing that actually led me to having the conversation was my sister. She had spent the whole week joking about the concept of overfunctioning without knowing at all what she was saying. But she was actually in the elevator over-functioning for my mother by telling me how my mother probably felt. And that's when – that was like the trigger for me where I was like, I know I've been dealing with anxiety. Other people are dealing with anxiety and were trying to figure out what people are thinking and feeling without having talked about this. Maybe it's time that we let people share how they're actually thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. So that phrase, anxiety is an informer. It's something to pay attention to. It informed you to bring something out into the open. It and... should have informed me sooner, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that leads us awkwardly into our topic today because, um, I, I, you know, is the myth of competence. So it, would Zach, would you say you were competent in that? Oh, I was more than competent. <laughs> As we were talking, but about John talks about there's a myth of competence. So maybe you know, John, maybe you should take control of this and try to. Help well, sure. So so let's look at, and I'm going to look at three questions, uh, and then I'm going to relate these kind of back to Zach's original story. Um, one is what is what is competence? Like what is that? Uh, secondly, is how is it measured? And then thirdly, why is obtaining competence so elusive? So it's what it is, how's it measured, and why is obtaining it so elusive? And I, you know, I, I want to think back to the fable that you shared, Zach. And so Zach shared a fable about mom planning a vacation and wanting to plan it really, really well. And when things didn't go so well at certain s- situations, the phrase you use is, I'm just afraid that in the future, you guys aren't going to want to come on vacation. 
So, so let's start off with first, just, I'm just curious what you all think about in your mind, what is competence? What does that mean? Well, I looked up the definition. So let's start with Zach. <laughs> uh, the ability to adequately perform a task. Competence. <laughs> I didn't look anything up. I'm not prepared. That's just what I would say off the top of my head. Uh, I think that was pretty accurate. I mean, what I have is here is the ability to do something successfully or efficiently. Mm-hmm. John, how did we score? Well, I didn't look up the definition at all. That's what you guys are for. I'm just post questions. <laughs> oh, okay, good. So I won. Thanks. Dang it. <laughs> the myth of my competence is becoming more realized. <laughs> yes, we've we've noticed that for a while now. But anyway, some are slow to the game. So you know, what is competent? You mentioned about a task, you mentioned about efficiency. And so it's is competence about Input or output? Is it about input or output? Output. Sounds like, I mean, the way that we're defining things, it seems like it's an output, a technical piece. So if you say somebody's incompetent, what, 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 what type of situation would, would one label another person as they're incompetent? Um, well, they're not doing their job. Whatever that job, whatever tasks they have been given, they are not doing them well. Or not at all. I, but I would say it's a statement about the person's capabilities mm-hmm. and that that's what leads to the outcome. Like the emphasis is on what you can or cannot do is the measure of that. Isn't, maybe not the measure, but is what defines that outcome. Well, it's like a label. I feel yeah. like that person's now labeled. Reread your definition, Carl Alex. is incompetent. He like, yeah. you know, he's the essence of it. Reread your definition. Uh, the ability to do something successfully or efficiently. Yeah, like right there, you, the the person who's performing that, you've already given them the label of mm-hmm. successful or efficient, which are both positive, and then those are thrown at the task. Mm-hmm. So is competence about potential or performance? Hmm. I don't know. It sounds like it could be both but it would be based off of an observed performance and then from that you could come up with an idea of their potential and be like well well, what i've observed of their performance they are now incompetent because that would be their potential Mm -hmm. that i see with them going forward so you're saying there have to be some observable carrying out of some type of task that didn't go well for one to then conclude that somebody's incompetent. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or task, or if you were interviewing somebody, say, you know, six times or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, six times. Not that I've been in that situation or am currently in that situation. <laughs> Trying to measure your competence. So what drives somebody to seek approval of another? This reminds me of a podcast we did earlier. You might remember with a college student that wrote in about... What was that topic that we did? TV, media, No, this was earlier on about driving. Oh. Do you remember um, the the student that wrote in about college? This was Perfectionism. Perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Perfect. So you haven't listened. So if you like tonight's podcast or today's podcast or whenever you're listening to it podcast, (laughs) take take a listen to the perfectionism because I see a lot of parallels between this. The pursuit of perfectionism, 
I think, is a is a the other side of the coin of the myth of competence. This almost elusive pursuit. I mean, that was my third question, which we'll get to. But uh, of how why does it seem to be so elusive? But um, so I think we've established that you know the idea of what is competence is the ability to be able to carry out a task in ways that people find to be done well or uh, in a proving way that people think they, they almost pass a judgment on another that yes, you've, you've been successful and, 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 uh, so that's what I think about when I think of competence. So is that, is that your measured piece then? Well, my second question is how is it measured? And you mentioned about the idea of, you know, you say somebody doesn't do something well. And so that you say that they're incompetent. So my question is, is it measured internally or is it measured externally? Competence. I mean, based off of the exchange that was just had, it's you're giving someone the power to label you competent or incompetent. I mean, it's interesting because I often view myself on a scale. I say, you know, this is how I would have done poorly. This is how I would have done well. I landed somewhere in the middle. I could do these things better. I did do these things really well, and I did these things poorly. You know, I don't view it as like an on-off switch initially. But I do know people that don't ever get into that granularity, but they'll just immediately say, I was successful or I failed or I was competent or I was incompetent. So is it data-driven? So this de- determining of um, competence or incompetence, is this, you know, can you can you measure it? Can you sit down and go, this person didn't do, they had to do, Carl had to package 100 boxes, and now he only did 80, you know, 80% clip, so, or, you know, let's go down to an, an F grade, below 60%, and now he's incompetent? Is that how we're measuring this? Is that is that a proper measurement? If it, is it all just task? Is it just task oriented? Yeah, I mean, I think the the measuring stick that's used in the case you had of you need to do a hundred packages in a minute or some whatever it was, is that realistic for us to expect Carl to do that? And if the answer is no, that it's really not realistic for Carl to be able to do that, I think this kind of gets at the the essence of this myth of competence that where it's elusive because it's just not something that you can ever do. So in the case of an actual measurement of units of production, it may be physically impossible to do that. But I think the larger aspect that our listeners might think about is their own performance Mm -hmm. as a student, as a parent, as an employee, that the goalposts Mm -hmm. seem to always move and there it's hard to quantify and measure success you know, how good of a husband am I, or how good of a teacher am I, or how good of a son am I? I think that's, those are hard things to measure. And so what we, because they're hard to measure, I think what we then do is we look for some way to measure them. So, and I kind of have an answer to, in my head, but I want to hear what you guys think. So if there's an elusive measurement to son, father, teacher, employee, whatever other hats people wear, then how do we measure it if we can't measure it like we can with production of widgets? 
the the example that comes to mind is in software development and any sort of project management. It's called scope creep, you know, where you set out to do something and then you end up doing more and more and more. And the reason this is an issue is because let's say I said I could do I could plan Alex's lesson in half an hour and then I decide that I'm going to plan his lesson and a lab and, you know, I just keep adding to it. That half an hour is not an accurate representation of what it is. And the reason I'm thinking that way is parenting is not so much a task as it is like um, a series of responsibilities and tasks. Like it's more than just reducible to tasks. And so... So how can you measure that? So if tasks we can measure, I think we've established that you can measure tasks. How do you measure roles? This, I'm thinking it's a state of mind. So everybody's going to be on a different scale, as you love scales, Zach. Mm, and this is the way I'm saying is that there's a scale, and depending upon which type of task or which type of role they're being put in, is they're going to be higher achievers and lower achievers or more competent and less competent. And that is also going to be dependent upon what is their state of anxiety during said task or said time of competence. So um, I almost see, I, I just see it as almost like a state of mind. So if I was going to have somebody help me do something, um, their state of mind of whether or not they feel confident enough to do something, I feel like that kind of plays in some sort of part of, you know, whether or not they're going to be competent in helping me do whatever and so i might seek out different people to help me do different things to determine now this is very external this isn't an internal on me so um that's that the external piece of it maybe the internal piece of deciding whether i'm competent or not within something um geez i mean from the internal side there's got to be Jeez, lining up guiding principles. I'm thinking guiding principles, and I'm thinking self-differentiation, and there's a lot of internal work, it sounds like, on that end. I mean, externally, I think you could you can do some measurables, and you can compare yeah. yourself to other people because there's a lot of comparisons. But when individually, internally, I think that could be something let me, deeper. Let me jump in unless you have something you want to say. No, you can go ahead. Um, I like just in my thoughts, the way I wanted to phrase it was a role breaks into tasks and convictions, but I, I re reframed that. And I think you have, there's the internal and the, the external, we'll call them responsibilities of a role. And those externals are tasks, are accomplishables. They're the things that you can or cannot determine um, success on, right? So, so, it, you, so you can determine success or you can't determine success? Uh, like the certain measurable outcomes, okay. right? Mm -hmm. So there are things that, that you can measure. We'll mm -hmm. call them tasks, I mm -hmm. guess. Sure. You know, how many boxes does he need to package? Mm -hmm. You know, you can figure out those externals, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the internal piece. How are you going to approach it um, based on convictions, right? And those are harder to pick down. Like we can think of indicators per se, Right. Um, how many times did someone come to me and I told them what to do as compared to listen to them or 
we can find indications, but there's no real way to quantify mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read for you. So, so my idea of the myth of competence came from a book that I'm reading now by a gentleman named Israel Galindo, and he writes a, a number of books. This one here is called Perspectives on Congregational Leadership. So he does a lot of work with churches, but as we've studied before, um, we know that congregations are not school systems, they're not families, they're not sports teams, but systems have things in common. And so when he talks about the myth of competence, he defines it this way. The myth of competence is the attitude fed by chronic anxiety that leads one to believe that personal self-worth, our relevance, and our meaning reside in the external definitions and assurances of being competent in everything that you do. Mm. And it manifests itself in systems, excuse me, it manifests itself in symptoms of systemic anxiety and can result in burnout and depression. So in there, he talks about this chronic anxiety. And I go back to to Zach, your fable earlier on where your mom said, if things don't go go well, what if? She was worried about what might happen if your perception of her competence related to planning the vacation wasn't up to snuff. And that really caused her anxiety. And so when I talk about, you know, you know, and thinking of framing this through these moving goalposts of competence, it's this never-ending pursuit of being perceived as competent by another and never really knowing whether you've arrived or not. And I think that there's some truth to that, and that certainly can bring anxiety. Hmm. You said everything you do. Is that what it said? Is that what you said? It says in everything. It, so it's his definition of is being competent in everything one does. That's what he says in his definition. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure to live. But I tell you what, successful people do this in mm-hmm. the sense that, so when you look at people who excel in, in, in the work world, especially, they are driven to excellence. And uh, you could look at excellence being an extreme version of competence, but I think it's the same idea that it's just a never-ending pursuit where one can never really measure successfully how I'm doing unless it's used to measure against another person's performance. Mm. So you might mm. remember our last last podcast when we had Jared Williams as our guest, he talked about this notion of why does it seem like sometimes when I watch someone deliver a sermon that there's a little tinge inside of me that feels like, hmm. I wish I would have done that. And there's this competition. And I'm wondering if that competition is based on this myth of competence that because there's no quantifiable measurement, that the only other thing we have left is measuring ourselves against another person. Hmm. And, and And this is just a side comment. And yet I would be willing to bet that a large portion, if not all of us, would say that we're all in not perfect people. So at one point we're saying, oh, I can reach this perfection. I can reach this competence. But in the next breath also say, but nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. So, huh? You know? Um, I mean, the first, when, when you were reading that, my first thought was, 
Well, so the issue is with quantifiability, that that competence is not quantifiable. But really, it was the external factor that was the issue. It's that what they were using to quantify was outside of their control, outside of their capabilities, mm. um, outside of their ability to influence. So you look at the SCARF model, which we talked about in our last podcast and a number of times, from David Rock and neuroscience leadership, but the autonomy piece of that, you know, I'm not able to control th- my view of competence if it's measured against the, the, the acts and the production of others takes the autonomy piece out. The S part of the scarf model, again, this is a model that says every human being needs these five items to function successfully. The status piece is is there and, and always in, in competition or in question. The certainty piece is always in question. And certainly, no pun intended, the relatedness piece. So if I am delivering a lesson in class and I see somebody else doing it better, there's a tinge of me thinking, man, I wish I could have done that. So there's the relatedness piece that causes me to distance from them. So I think this myth of competence really gets at the heart of many of the letters in the SCARF model and just drives up our anxiety. And our answer to this is, for many people, is simply work harder mm-hmm. and double down, which it then begins this, this perfection piece. So like literally, as you're saying this, I have three things that go up. Anxiety goes up, number one. Number two, under, over-functioning goes up. Mm-hmm. And number three... The amount of, we talked about willpower, the amount of willpower for mm-hmm. you to make this happen goes up. Mm-hmm. So then it, all three of those combine, and we are dealing with something that's uh, leading to, what did you say, depression and... Anxiety, and then, yeah, depression, anxiety, and burnout. People, yeah. people just get burnout. Mm-hmm. Just a side note, could you also have underfunctioning? Could you have someone who, rather than distancing themselves tries to borrow someone else's self and say they did that so well, I want to be just like them and become closer to them because you're choosing to view them as competent because they're your standard? Yeah, I don't know that I see the over and under-functioning phenomena there in that example that you shared. I don't know, maybe you saw it there, but... Um, I mean, I could see it as... The underfunctioning part that I could see is the anxiety got so high that now you're like, well, I don't, I don't think I'm ever gonna be able to reach this. I could see it easily becoming that. I could see the cutoff infusion in there too. So, um, and the overfunctioning side or either side, you know, anxiety goes up. Well, now I'm going to fuse with everybody else and micromanage, or I'm going to cut off and do this all by myself. You know, so I can see a couple of those pieces. Yeah. You know, the underfunctioning side. We know that there's, you know, we've got both sides that happen yeah. there. Um, Maybe the seeking to be micromanaged because of a lack of confidence in your own abilities. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes, yeah, that works. So, so uh, Galindo goes on to talk about where this myth of competence comes from. And he says that the myth stems from personal issues related to a person's sense of self-worth, their personal formative history. Uh, a deficient personal belief system, uh, and a lack of self-differentiation. 
He then goes on to say that it's a systemic issue that manifests itself fully in how a person functions and relates to others at the relational level. You know, I, I've taught at Stowe, where I teach for a long time, and I've taught a lot of bright kids. I, I teach a number of AP classes, and I have for many years. And um, so I have taught a lot of high-functioning kids who, who also come from very, very anxious families. And I'm wondering, so I'm a parent, and, and as a parent, when your child excels at anything, there's a sense of kind of being proud and it's something that the family can talk about. And I'm wondering if early on in a child's life that some children have learned that excelling at school, for example, makes my parents happy. And when they're happy, they're arguing less. They're a little bit calmer. And this is certainly a, a triangle that's happening between the, the two insiders, the parents, and then the outsider of the child's you know, uh, success. And I'm wondering if then the automatic functioning, this is all subconscious, but then becomes in any situation when I sense anxiety, my go-to is to perform and to work. And that's what people carry into their adult lives when they sense systemic anxiety in the workplace. Their answer is to take on another task or do more of this. And it, they're just driven by this treadmill of competence that they never can quite catch up to. And that ultimately is maybe what that Perfection podcast addressed earlier. Yeah, so you're almost just trading up uh, throughout life who you're measuring your competence with. It's not really even about what's being measured or why it's being measured, but you're choosing someone to measure you, and then you just keep trading up, whether it's at work whether it's at home, you know, it switches from being your family to your, your, you know, your parents to your wife, to your kids, to, you know. Could this be driving a bit of the everybody wins mentality that you can see sometimes where everybody gets a trophy, you know? So we don't want to, I don't know. I mean, as you said that, I was thinking, you know, if we're all driving for this happiness of always, everybody's doing well always, which is impossible, um, you know. Uh, I don't know. That's one thing that kind of, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't really appreciate sometimes when people will say, well, we're in this society where everybody's got to get a trophy all the time. It's not, that's not everybody. So let's not, you know, mark everybody, but there is a piece of that that we see. I know that John and I have seen, I know Zach has seen it just, you know, the, the different groups that are coming forward, different generations. And that can be part of that too, um, where we don't want to step on any toes. Um, so my question then is, what's the difference between the myth of competence and healthy competition? Because there are soccer teams who, you know, soccer teams, f football teams, sports teams, their success is measured by their ability to perform specifically in relation to other teams. Sure. Yeah, I, I think... I go back to inputs and outputs that, you know, we've put the time in to practice. We've done the best we could at preparation. In the end, they just were a better team. And maybe a coach gets fired because after four or five years of what they believe they're doing proper inputs and the, the correct balance of time, they just weren't able to get the job done. But they don't allow that judgment to define them as a person. 
So who I am as a person, we've talked about guiding principles before. If I can settle on guiding principles or if our listeners can settle on what they really believe about who they are as a person, then the outcome of X, Y, or Z just matters a little bit less. So if I'm hearing correctly, so with the myth of competence, um, it's looking towards this, you know, competence when it comes to other people is not helpful, task-oriented. It could be very detrimental, lead to a lot of anxiety, all of those things. But there's also a piece of it to where internally I can look at my own competence and perhaps reevaluate that. And to reevaluate that, we could do what? Like, how can we, you know, the coach beacon me, because John said the goalposts keep moving further away. Well, if I was doing a speech on stage, I would say, you just need to move up the goalposts. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then I think in perfect form, that'd be the last thing you say. And then you say, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, part of this is how do we move the goalposts up? You know, like I hate to keep using this term, but we toss it out there. So is there a way to do that? Is there a way to not be so reliant upon that competency and be okay with things? Can you just be okay? And how do you get there? Is that possible? I mean, does that relate to guiding principles and convictions? The idea that your goalposts are those convictions and they're set by those convictions rather than the things of which are not, such as other people's performances or other people's expectations, figuring out how those relate to your own convictions, your own standards, your own guiding principles, and then using that as your quote-unquote goalpost that is significantly closer. Hopefully you know how to kick the ball, too. That would be helpful. I'm just thinking of, like, the track um, hurdles where it doesn't matter how high you jump because you can just knock it down and keep running. Like, <laughs> they're meant to roll that way. <laughs> That's the kind of goalpost I want. Yeah, the, the ones where you can knock over and keep running. Just keep okay. running. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking about... The idea of, so what's one to do with this? If yeah. if we're on a treadmill of competence, um, so Glindo goes on to talk a little bit about some things to consider. Uh, he t and you guys have touched on this a little bit. Make personal excellence the standard of, you, of your work, not competence. Personal excellence. I think that's a focus on inputs and not outputs. So could this commitment to excellence. He talks about setting your own standards based on personal values and principles rather than working off the expectations of other people. Because those expectations, the goalposts, can move up. They can move back. You're at the whims of the, 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 just the emotions of others as opposed to deciding for yourself what you believe and being excellent at those things. He also goes on to talk about accepting failure as, as part of the progress towards a goal that you have set for yourself. So you're not living a script that someone else gave you and said, this is how you should behave or this is what you should be in our family. But you're deciding for yourself what you believe and then acting on that belief.
Hmm. Yeah, I, as you said that, I was thinking of something that um, I've been trying to work on a lot right now is shutting my mouth. So when I want to complain about something or blame somebody about something else or spread some gossip somewhere, that's part of that too because it feeds into that system of I've got to be a notch above or I got to blame it on somebody else because I'm not feeling competent or I'm not feeling my excellence. And so it's so, so easy for me to just go up to somebody who doesn't even, I, I'm not even that close to, but then complain or blame somebody for something else that's been going on because I can't do something about that. And so being okay and saying, well, I screwed up or like this person is also a person and they can also screw up too. Um, it's tough, but I think it, it can also strengthen your resolve for when things go not so well. Close only counts in horseshoes. So what I'm hearing is we want to set our expectations like horseshoes so that it's not success or failure, but it's about getting as close as you can to the mark. I think the difference is in degrees and not pieces of paper degrees (laughs) (laughs) or the deodorant. Fahrenheit. 451. Uh It's a journey. You are on a journey. um, And if you see it as a journey, it becomes much more adventurous. And you can make those failures and you can stumble along. Um, Because we've all seen a story. We all know people. We've all watched movies. Every single story. That main character is stumbling through something. And we've all been there. You're stumbling through whatever it is helps you grow more than any of those competency things that you've done just because you're competent at those. It's those stumblings that really can make, number one, make great stories, and number two, make, in my opinion, great people. And so if you, if you look at that um, and see life as this adventure and you know my leadership as this adventure, I think it could be a lot more exciting and a lot more fun um, if you're willing to go on that journey. Um, yeah. Well, thanks guys with that. I've just been thinking through that a little bit. Yeah. Really interesting topic. So I'll close this out. I think you could check us out on iTunes, Google play, Google podcasts, the YouTubes. Oh yes. The YouTubes, the Facebooks, Tinder, (laughs) swipe, right. I think right every single time. Yeah. There's just a picture of all three of us. That might be good marketing. Yeah, like, who is this? And then, you know. Okay, we'll push that out with the website, our <laughs> Tinder profile. So, uh, yeah, and email us at... Theovpodcast no. at gmail.com. No. The of podcast. The, yeah, O-V, of. O-F. O-F, sorry. O-F, yes, 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 for sure. So with that, I believe we are done. My name is Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. And we will catch you next time on the Flippity Flop. See you around. Adios.